discover why identifying the missing processes for other businesses is a big opportunity that service-based business owners can miss, and how Joel invested his time to build a delivery process that set him and his team up as the go-to experts in an uncontended niche. Welcome to the Small But Mighty Agency Podcast. If you're a creative consultant or agency owner who wants to know what the roller coaster ride really looks like to grow your business from one to many, you're in the right place. My guest and I pull back the curtains on the realities of growing and running agencies of different sizes and what it takes to build a team. And if you're anything like me, you want more than the highlight reel. You want to learn from the mistakes of others so that you can stop short of making the same mistakes. I'm your host, Audrey Joy Kwan. I spend my days as a coach and consultant to multiple six and seven figure agency owners. For the last seven years, I've been behind the scenes helping people grow, lead, and operate small but mighty agencies. Here at the Small But Mighty Agency podcast, we'll uncover what works and equally as important what didn't work to get these business owners to where they are today. Welcome, Joe. I've been following your success for a while now. For me, your story highlights the smart pivots we take our businesses through as founders and entrepreneurs. In the service-based business world, the service and offerings we start with isn't going to be the same years down the road. It rarely is. And before we jump into a convo about pivots and niches, tell us about your agency, what you do, and who's on your team. Sure. Yeah. So case study, buddy. Um, we we launched kind of in 2016. It was a spinoff of my original business, which I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about later. Um, but we serve B2B companies. Kind of most of our clients are sort of mid-sized to enterprise uh, companies, but we also work with you know boutique and established consultancies or even uh, individual creators. So people who are putting out courses or teaching kind of, you know, the, the way we talk about it right now is we're, we're sort of serving the top 10% of any given B2B sort of space or the companies that are serious and ambitious enough to, to get there. So we help them with customer success stories and we tell those stories in a few different ways. So one of the things that we're passionate about as a team is we can do written assets. Uh, we're making a huge play into doing video assets this year. We turn the interviews that that we run for these customer success stories into things like audiograms. So we're really trying to push the envelope in terms of what does a customer success story look like, sound like, how how is it written? How do we make these more engaging, more interesting, more compelling to read and really turn them into the sales and marketing assets they can be. In terms of my team, so we're, we're set up a little bit unique. I think I was always reticent to the idea of starting an agency and somehow I guess kind of sort of a maybe have one at this point, even though I don't really want to admit that to myself. But we have kind of our core leadership team. So, you know, I founded the company. I have a partner, Jen, and the two of us are kind of leading the bigger strategic initiatives and and coordinating and trying to work ourselves out of a whole bunch of different roles. Uh, We have Morgan, who is our operations person, and she keeps the trains running on time. And uh, we're bringing in some help for her very soon because we're just growing at a rate that one human won't possibly be able to manage even how superhuman she is. Uh, we have then every everyone else on our team is a, a subcontract for the most part. So we have a few people on long-term retainers, you know, like our, our lead writers, our, our lead interviewers are on long-term retainers. And then we have contractors who work with us on a project by project basis ongoing. And, and those are everyone in case study, buddy gets to specialize. So our interviewers only interview, our writers only write, designers just get to design. Everyone gets to focus on doing one piece 
of the customer success story process really, really well, which is kind of a unique setup uh, compared to how some other people sort of structure their companies. So we're unique in that today, right now, everybody's a contractor that might change in the next six to 12 months. Um, and we've got a team of just around, I think, as of today, we're, we're 22 or 23 uh, in, in all these different areas. So that's, uh, that's what we do. That's who we are. And, and that's what we're excited about. I love what you pointed out there that you have a unique organizational structure. And I, I do agree. I, I also know that uh, Case Study Buddy wasn't your first business. And you've gone through this number of iterations to get to Case Study Buddy. Can you start off by telling us how you got started? Yeah, definitely. So I went out on my own in 2013. I used to do SEO agency side, which I mean, there's a long story of how I fell ass backward into doing that. But I went off on my own in 2013 because I saw a real opportunity out there uh, in the content space. At the time, every major agency really started to care about the written word, especially in the digital space. It used to be this afterthought, and all of a sudden, it was the most important part of their process. So I left the company, uh, the agency I was working for in 2013, went out on my own, and originally, I was doing content. So I was writing blog posts and eBooks and white papers and that sort of thing. And within you know a year, year and a half of being out on my own, I was introduced to the space of conversion copywriting and conversion copywriting is kind of the like grandkid of direct response. It's salesmanship in print, but it's a little bit different. It's all digital. There's a lot of, you know, this this beautiful blend of psychology and analytics and understanding how people make decisions and how they behave and then turning that into copy that sells. And so I fell in love with that space because it married up this creative writing streak that I'd always had and this analytics that I'd learned to love while I was doing SEO. So within a year and a half, I, I began really focusing on writing landing pages, websites, sales pages, you know, email series, really focusing on conversions. And so my process really grew and changed. And I spent most of my time uh, interviewing people and running surveys and watching recorded user sessions and diving into analytics. And to this day, that is my own consulting work that is my own copywriting work when i take on projects i've been very fortunate to build a great reputation in that space and so i still consult on that front and i still do conversion audits and, and copy audits but a couple of years into that I, I was working on a major conversion copywriting project for a company called wp engine and one of my points of contact there was this amazing guy, really sharp, influential man. And project went well, and he had been someone that I enjoyed working with on it. And he came to me after that project and said, hey, I advise this, this little startup called Pingboard, and they need a customer success story. Uh, is that something you do? And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, I've never done one before, but you know, this is kind of a guy you just you don't say no to. It's a really neat opportunity. So I thought, well, I'm going to explore it. And I said, yeah, I'll, I'll take a shot at it. You know, I'll, I'll make sure I do a really good job of it if they're willing to kind of give me the space to do that. So in the process of doing that case study, my eyes were really open to this massive opportunity that was hiding in plain sight. So I realized through the course of doing that, number one, case studies are really hard to do. Anyone who doesn't think so hasn't tried to do one. They're really hard because there's so many moving pieces. Someone needs to get buy-in from the client. Someone then needs to schedule an interview, run that interview, and run that interview well so you get all the information you need in as little time as possible. And hey, there's no mulligan because your customer is doing you a favor. So that interview has to go well. That enough. You know, that alone makes makes people nervous. But not only do you have to run a really great interview, but then it's a matter of picking, okay, well, what parts of this story do we tell? How do we tell it in a compelling way? It's not just 
problem solution results, but how do we turn this into something people want to read? How do we get those juicy details and metrics? And so the more that I worked on this project, the more I realized, okay, case studies are way harder than people anticipate. And then through discussions and kind of looking around, another realization was, okay, every B2B organization needs these, but almost no B2B organizations have a process for it or even know who owns this function internally. There's an argument, is this sales's job? Is this marketing's job? Sales certainly needs these assets, but they don't have time to produce them. Marketing you know, wants to put these assets together, but doesn't always have the buy-in relationship with sales. So there's this real dichotomy of like, well, whose job is this? And so it gets pushed to the mod, the priority list. And so nobody owns it, so they don't get done. And they also don't get done because again, they're so hard to do. So here was an asset that's hard to do, everybody needs, organizations don't really have a process for, you can charge a premium for because of everything I just mentioned. And then the icing on the cake was, okay, I got to the end of the project. I thought, surely someone has put up their hand and said, all right, well, this is where I specialize this. You know, the, we, we've got a company and this is all we do. And we do it really, really well. And so I Googled it. I started looking around and it was a wasteland. It was, you know, one woman who was like the clear specialist, the clear top of the market, and she couldn't possibly own the whole thing. And then a handful of you know agencies where this was just one more thing they tacked on kind of half-heartedly and a couple of freelancers who, who kind of said they specialized when you really got down to it, you know, they did like maybe one piece of it really well and the rest they hadn't thought of. So at that point, I, I kind of thought, well, why not me? Like I've gone through the process. I can turn this into a repeatable productized process and I can build a team around that and we can solve these really challenging problems in a way nobody else can. So I'm going to do it. I'm going to go for it. Joel, you made this big pivot. And it, to me, it sounds like a big pivot because it's a fairly deep niche right? to focus on case study buddies. Some would say that such a deep niche is limiting. What do you say to that thinking? Uh, well, I mean, here's the thing. I, and this has been the way I've thought about this my whole career. I mean, what mental real estate do you want to own? We, we fool ourselves into thinking that there's strength in going broad. Well, if I do SEO and PPC and I design websites and I develop websites and I do it for everybody, then everybody will hire me. And what happens is you become more limited because nobody knows what you stand for or what you specialize in. Like nobody knows how to refer you because, oh, well, they do great work, but they kind of do a little bit of everything. They do, you know, lots of things okay, but nothing really, really well. So, I mean, yeah, there, there definitely are. I'm, I'm not going to pretend there aren't challenges to focusing solely on one asset. But again, it comes back to like, who else? Who else do you know of, even person listening to this podcast that specializes just in doing customer success stories? Probably nobody. That makes us, once you've seen our work, the easiest possible referral because we are so well niched down. It's so obvious what our value add is. We know exactly who we are and what we do and how we get it done. And so even though, yeah, we're not, you know, we're not broad in terms of service offering, we don't have to be because this need exists in every B2B business. This, this itch, you know, this is an itchy thing that we can scratch for a whole lot of different companies. And so we don't, you know, we don't have to scratch other things like you want blog content, we can turn a case study into a blog post, you know, that follows a certain format, but we don't exist to do anything else. And so, yes, like it is limited in terms of scope, but there's power and limitations. The other thing is because we're so focused, we can build the best process around solving 
a particular problem instead of having to build a whole bunch of processes around solving a whole bunch of different problems in different fields. And we can hire people who are really aligned with the the piece that we do and really, really good at doing the piece that we handle. We don't have to try to resource, okay, well, we need someone who's deep on ads. Now we need someone who's deep on SEO and we need an analytics person. Like focus, I think for us anyways, is a superpower and the niche is not so small that we'll ever tap it out. Even if we, you know, ran the most aggressive sales and marketing campaign on the planet, we can never, even us with the team we have, we can never serve the entire market. So we're narrow in terms of focus, but the opportunity is is super broad. And because we're easy to remember, easy to refer and specialized in solving this one specific problem, um, we've been able to get in with organizations that I never dreamed of when I started this company. Companies on the Fortune 100 are coming to us. I'm like, what? You have this problem too? And yeah, they've got this problem too. So, you know, th- there is actually some sneaky hidden power in, in, in limiting yourself and focusing down and in not trying to be everything to all people. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. I think that the marketplace, and especially in marketing, there's a saturation of service providers trying to do all the things. And so um, when I first came across Case Study Buddy, that was what I was most intrigued by is the fact that you guys are such a big specialist. Now, I want to backtrack a bit and ask you, Joel, to tell us a bit more about how you took being a conversion copywriter and then went to market as a person who wrote case study buddies. How did that happen? I'm sure it wasn't overnight. What what did that transition look like for you? Yeah, yeah. I think it was easier. You know, I I had a lot of advantages in that the market I, I was serving and continue to serve on the conversion copy side is the same market. I was already serving software. I was already working with B2B. I'd already cultivated a reputation on that side. But, you know, people knew me as the conversion guy, not not the case study guy. So, uh, you know, so much of the process overlapped. I think that was one of the key things is with conversion copywriting, no matter what, you have to get good at talking to people and understanding them and having empathy and getting the most you can out of the least amount of time. Because uh, whoever you're talking to, whether it's in a survey response or, or an interview, they're doing you a favor. And so there was some natural skill set, natural alignment. I think one of the benefits for me is I wasn't starting from nothing. I, I, I had a network, I had a reputation. And so it was a matter of taking the things that you know overlapped in their reputation. People trusted my level of work. People trusted the way I thought through problems. Because for years, I've been solving problems in public. Like when people ask me what my marketing strategy is, that's that's it in a sentence is I go solve problems in public. I find an audience with an itch I can scratch and I demonstrate over and over again by sharing and teaching and showing the work that I've done and showing them how to do the, the work that I've done. I demonstrate to them that I'm really good at, at solving this problem and I can solve it for you. And so with Case Study Buddy, it was the same thing. I kind of quietly, you know, started approaching my existing network and saying, hey, you know, I, I'm hoping to build a team and a business around doing these customer success stories. And could we do some for you? I'll make it, you know, worth your time and, and super low risk. And as I did those, I started to solve that problem in public and started talking more about case studies and talking more about customer success stories and talking more about how to run a great interview. And the key is consistency. I think people can only know you for something if you're all about that thing for a while. Um, You know, when I came out of the SEO world, people knew me as an SEO. I had to get them to see me as a conversion copywriter or a content producer. How did I do that? Well, first and foremost, I started kind of doing the work and then I talked about the work and solved problems in public. And 
position myself as someone who could solve that problem. And soon enough, people, you know, saw me that way. And, and I owned a new piece of mental real estate for, for them when, when they needed to refer a conversion copywriter to a software business, I was the guy. So it's about, you know, kind of that consistency, that solving problems in public, about demonstrating, because people don't just hire you for what you do, they, they hire you for how you think. And so demonstrating the way you solve problems gives people the confidence to say, I know that that, that company or, or that gal or that guy can, can solve that problem for us. You said something that was so magical, and that is people hire you for how you think. I want to dive into that a bit more. I think when we first met, we really talked about this power of defining and demonstrating your process. I know I'm speaking to the converted on this power of showing process because it is the power of showing how you think. And I know that in your businesses, you nail that. Can you share why demonstrating the process has been so powerful for you and um, impactful to growing your business? Yeah, I mean, well, let's take it back to the fact that when people hire an outside consultant or an outside vendor, most of the time they want to be led. They've got a problem that they don't know how to solve. They're nervous about it. The stakes are high. They want someone who can come in and have a plan. They want someone they can trust to lead them through that problem. Having a process is one thing and it's critical. It's the backbone, but being able to articulate that process and explain not just what you do, but what you get out of doing that and what they get out of you doing that for each step of that process. That's where it all comes to life because you go from being one of many different vendors to, hey, we like the way they think through these problems. We can see demonstrable proof that they are on our level, that they are whacking the same moles that that we need whacked. They get us, they get our space. And so, you know, it harkens back to one of the first things I said that I realized when I was doing this customer success story, my very first one for, for Pingboard, one of the first things I recognized was almost no companies have a process for this at all. And where there's an absence of process, there's a massive business opportunity. Where people are fumbling around in the dark and winging it, if you can bring some certainty and some confidence to that, they will sign up for it. They will be excited about it because they don't have that. They they need that from you. They're, they're looking to you to lead them through that problem. And so, you know, at the end of the day, you're not selling a product. You're not, you know, you're solving a problem. And if you can show them and demonstrate here's how I'm going to solve that problem. If you can be the person with the plan or the company with the track record, that gives you an immediate position of power. Because even as I mentioned, even companies that I'm like, what? Like you guys don't have a process for this, but you're you're worth billions of dollars. Yeah. Even billion dollar companies have aspects of their business that they don't have a good process for. And if you can isolate that, and if you can be the one to supply that, I mean, watch out. That's that's where the rubber really hits the road. This is so, so good. You just said some keywords there, and that is the absence of process equals massive opportunity. And I, I think that um, sometimes people see an absence of process and they shy away from that, Joel. And what I hear you say is that, no, when you see an absence of process, that's the time to attack, to see what's missing and serve. So let's, let's talk about the case study buddy process here. I... I'm assuming that when you first started case study, but you didn't have that process nailed down right away, right? So there was iterations that happened for you to develop that process. Can you share some of the iterations that you went through? Yeah, I mean, case study buddy is less of a company and more of a process. Like that, that really, we're, we're a process masquerading as a company. Like really, we've got amazing people now who 
like we're not done. We're, we're always refining, right? There's always some way to be better, more convenient, more efficient, but nobody kind of just like spontaneously combusts into a perfect process. And, and that's what can be intimidating for business owners is to go, Oh, well, they do it so well and we'll never match that. But I mean, they did it crappy for a long time. You just didn't see it. Um, you know, and, and the thing too, is like, at some point you've just got to start. So that's, that's why for the first kind of almost full year. And before I like went and threw people at the problem or really tried to aggressively scale the business for months, maybe even a year before I, I got serious about marketing this thing, I spent time in the muck doing the work myself because I wanted to understand what could go wrong. And then if I know what can go off the rails, I can build a process to solve it. If I know, you know, if I can anticipate what might be inconvenient or uncomfortable, I can build something better that is. And so originally, you know, I came into this, you'll remember from from my description earlier, I came into this like, yeah, I don't know if they're willing to give me a, a bit of a leash to figure this out. I'm more than happy to take a stab at writing a case study. So I came in knowing the principles of writing and, and having a good sense of like, how to tell a story, but the actual format, like, you know, it was just a process of learning. And initially I was borrowing. I was looking around, I was looking at how other companies did it. I was looking at, uh, you know, reading, you know, how other people were doing case studies. And so I was borrowing process at first. I was taking what I saw working in other places, trying it out for myself, and then kind of patching holes. So looking at, okay, this worked, but it could be better. And so I, I borrowed at the beginning. I used other people's kind of process as inspiration. I took the pieces that made sense for me or that I saw really working well. And then I built on top of those. So I started with nothing, borrowed, built on top of it. And now we've got things that are entirely our own that we know nobody else is doing. Um, but we we couldn't get there without first going through the process of, you know, kind of cobbling cobbling things together. So it's been an iterative process, but you know, if there's one big takeaway there, I think a lot of business owners think, oh, I'm ready to scale. Like, I, so I'm, I'm going to go out and get people. And like the dumbest move I think you can make is to throw people at a problem without even a rudimentary process for them to kind of build off of to begin with. Or if you're going to hire someone, they've got to be a process builder, not just like if I would have just gone, oh, case studies. Yeah, there's the opportunity and like started hiring writers. It would have been chaos. It, it would have totally failed because everyone would have had their own ideas about how to get this done. So process should precede people. And I think before process comes purpose. So understanding like, why are we doing this? Why is this worth doing? What do we want to be by the time? Like, what will it look like if the process that we're going to build works? What's the big goal? So if you start with the purpose or the end in mind, and then build the process towards it, then you can bring on great people and they'll help you fine tune that process over time. Now my team makes our process better. They, they spot the gaps. It's not on me anymore because now they're in the weeds doing the work and seeing even in this thing we've fine tuned for a while, they're seeing the opportunities to continually make it better. There are so many takeaways in what you just said. I know you said there's one takeaway in there, but there are so many in there. And so I want to talk about uh, what you had just said. You, you said something that really caught my attention and that is 
that you have to spend time in the muck to understand what can go wrong. And, and that's part of doing the work before you bring the people in or i.e. throw people at it. And in order to do that, to spend the time in the muck, you mentioned a couple of steps that you took and that's borrowing process at first, trying it out, and then patching that process to make it work for yourself or your business before you bring the people in. I think that's so key because you're, you're really giving people the step-by-step way of how do you adopt a process to be your own when there is no process out there. And I want to talk about you actually bringing people into the process. So at what point did you start bringing people into the process? Right now you have a partner mm-hmm. in the business. So it was that the first person you brought in into Case Study Buddy or did it work out that um, you brought contractors in before you had a partner? Share how you built the business or the people in the business, I should say. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit cloudy. So the exact order I might get wrong because it, it happened in tight succession, but I kind of as soon as I saw the opportunity and as soon as I had the concrete idea for case study buddy, my immediate realization was, okay, I can't do this alone. My own consulting work, you know, my own conversion copywriting, that functions great as a one man business. You know, it, it, it could be a, just me and my stuff, but if I wanted to scale, I knew number one, I wasn't going to go whole hog into case study buddy, like right off the bat. So even just that alone, I needed help managing it, growing it. I knew from the start, like this is too big a thing for me to try to do unless I shut down my other work. And I wasn't willing to do that. And so if I'm recalling correctly, I'm pretty sure I went to Jen at that point. Uh, It might've been, this is where it's a little cloudy, but I'm pretty sure I went to Jen at that point. Jen and I had worked together agency side. She had recently gone out on her own And the one thing I knew about, well, I knew a handful of things about Jen having worked with her for a while, but I knew that Jen was someone that her and I could argue and still like each other at the end of the day. I knew that Jen was amazing at business development and project management, two things that I'm good at, but you know, I I knew I could be better and, and Jen outclassed me on that front. And so I thought, okay, I'm going to need help growing this and managing this and getting clients in. And so I approached Jen with the idea of, would you be willing to to come in on this? And I knew Jen, you know, we share a history in the agency, like I said, and I knew Jen wouldn't want to be part of anything she didn't own. And so while it was a, a risky play, we kind of had an a, a handshake agreement at the beginning. Like, okay, we don't know what it is right now. You know, we we know that we're going to figure it out. Like the company's too small for it to make sense for us to go to lawyers and like draft all this up. And maybe that's a mistake if you don't really know the person, but I trusted Jen. And, and so we had kind of a handshake agreement. It's like, okay, at some point you will own on paper a, a part of this company. We'll determine what that is when we know if, if what we've got is real and so Jen was one of the first. And so she came in and, and kind of started helping there. Now, whether it was whether Jen was the very first, this is where I'm not totally sure if I remember, because again, it happened close together. But one of the first people I brought in was Steve Peters. He's now our lead writer. So he was working with me as a contractor on the business casual corporating side. That's my other business. And so it was a natural fit. He was already doing work with me on the blog writing front, on the conversion copy front. So he was one of the first people to come in to kind of help carry the load and work together to define, you know, the formats and templates that we would write to. And then not too long from that, uh, brought in an interviewer and that's Lindsay. So Lindsay 
Um, you know, I recognized there would be a bottleneck if I had to both interview the customer and write the story, or if Stephen had to interview and write the story, there'd be a natural bottleneck. And so rather than trying to make him carry all that, I thought, well, I'll find someone who's just like a journalist who's really good at interviewing people. Uh, and, and I think Lindsay originally kind of came in on as a writer. Uh, and then we just recognized, hey, her interview chops are actually like so much stronger than her writing. Let's let her focus on that. And so soon we had a little team of four, Jen and I, Steve and Lindsay doing the interviews. And and that's what we were kind of from sort of 2016, um, you know, when, from the within a few months or, you know, seven, eight months of my doing that first project, probably right up until, you know, the end of 2017, early 2018. And that's finally at that point, you know, operating as a little team of four or five, that's where we, we whacked a ton of moles and ironed out a lot of the complexities of like working as a team and as multiple people. And 2018 is where the rubber really started hitting the road. We started to take things a lot more seriously. And at that point we had, you know, good processes for interviewing. We had good processes for writing, our formats and templates were well-defined. We all kind of knew our role. And so, you know, that's where we really started to press the gas. And then throughout 2018, 2019, 2020, now, again, we're, we're at 22, 23 different people. So it's it's been kind of incremental growth since then. Before we get back to the episode, I want to invite you to the free Strategic Connections Roundtable, where creatives, consultants, and service-based business owners can meet new business connections without the awkwardness of traditional networking. It's a curated experience where the group fit is curated so that connections and conversations thrive. That means that every month, a Strategic Connections Roundtable will bring together a group of service-based business owners in similar stages of business who can benefit from knowing each other so that you can make connections easier, share what your business offers, discover new resources, and have an opportunity to mastermind a challenge. Save your free seat at audreyjoyquan.com forward slash strategic dash connections dash roundtable. Above all, I care about genuine connections and authentic relationships in business. If that's you, check out the roundtable and curated networking experience today. You can get all the details and onto the free invite list over at audreyjoyquan.com forward slash strategic dash connections dash roundtable or click on the link in the show notes right there in your podcast app. Back to the show. I read somewhere that you had once hired 10 contractors into your business and as an attempt to scale it, and it didn't go off. Mm-hmm. Can And I'm yeah. sure there's so many lessons learned from that that you applied to case study buddy. So can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a catastrophic failure. So it, when I was very first out on my own, you know, I, I had a natural talent for the work. Um, you know, I, I don't say that in, in an arrogant way at all, but like, I just, there's certain things because I had a business background and I'd worked agency side, I just knew like what corporate expectations were around content and how to hit a deadline and how to format things and how to communicate. There are things I just kind of intuitively understood. And so like an idiot, I assumed that every freelance writer intuitively understood those things. And if I just got a bunch of us together, we'd scale up and, and it'd be great. And so when I was doing content, I kind of thought, well, yeah, I'll just, I'm, I'm getting more leads than I can handle. Why don't I just bring in some more writers and then we'll all, you know, write together and it'll be a beautiful thing. Well, it was a total disaster because I spent no time on process at all. I made the very foolish 
leap to thinking that everyone had the same standards that I did, that everyone wrote to the same formats and fonts that I did. I mean, that was a, a rush of cold water to the face, realizing like, hey, people like structure something as simple as a blog post, totally different. Some people use headlines, some people don't, some people use bolding, some people don't. So I had no standardized process to bring people into and it was like herding cats. I had no good process for vetting people other than looking at the portfolio and go like, yeah, that's a good piece. I should probably write more good pieces. So I just had no process. I had no, no, you know, predictable things I could hand them. I hadn't really decided or articulated what I was all about or how, you know, what success even looked like or whatever. And and the, I think the biggest failing of mine was that I wasn't of the mindset that I was stepping out of the role of creator and into the role of manager. And I think that's the toughest thing, especially for people who are good at their craft is like, you might be a, a shit hot plumber, like awesome at your, your job, but that doesn't mean you're going to be really great at building and managing a team of plumbers or building a, a plumbing business. You might be an awesome individual and your work is great and everybody loves you. That does not immediately qualify you to build out an entire company of plumbers. It takes a totally different skill set, a totally different mindset. And if you waltz into it thinking, yeah, everybody you know, will care as much as I do and follow the same process I do and communicate the same way I do, you're in for a world of hurt. And so it sounds obvious now in retrospect, right? Like people listening are like, oh, that, like what a dummy. But like, it's easy to make that mistake. It's It's easy to assume things because you're just so busy, preoccupied with the opportunity, you kind of forget the reality that like working with people is hard. It's amazing. It's rewarding. And when it works, there's nothing better. But working with people is not just like smiles and nods and rah, rah, rahs. There's got to be some structure. And if you don't provide that, I mean, you're you're in for a world of pain. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with you just because I work with creative entrepreneurs and oftentimes the creative person doesn't equal the best manager. They're two very different skill sets. And the man- managerial skill set is something that is learned over time. And so going back to how you ended up bringing Jen into the business, you mentioned that the time when you started case study, but you had kind of had an idea of who you work best with, right? There was a criteria here that really helped you bring Jen on. And that is you wanted to bring someone who you, on who you could argue and still like each other. I love that. I, I think when we're looking to bring people into our business, we want someone who is going to come in and tell us the truth. And there's going to be um, there's going to be just honesty and authenticity in that relationship. But in addition to that, when you brought on Jen, did you have a clear idea of like what areas you knew you needed to fill that you just weren't very good at? And because you had that list of things, you knew who to vet for this partnership. I mean, personality fit was a huge one, but the biggest points of need I recognize were someone's got to manage these projects and someone's got to do the biz dev. And I just knew again, like my time is so limited. If I'm also doing conversion copy projects and other things, I can't manage these projects effectively. So I knew Jen, like I say, I, I was I wanted someone who was a great communicator, someone who had a proven track record of building businesses, someone that I got along with and could disagree with, and it wouldn't be the end of the world. Someone who, you know, someone who like would, would take it seriously and and had the same ambition and motivation of building things and, and was excited to do that. And I knew like, I didn't go on some grand exodus looking for a partner. There was only ever Jen. 
it was only ever going to be her. I didn't shop around. I didn't look around. It, you know, when the idea occurred, it was literally, I should partner with Jen, not even like I should bring in a partner, but right away I was like, Jen would be ideal for this. And so, you know, that's me. That's not going to be everybody. But everybody told me, I got counsel on it before, right? I didn't blindly waltz into this. I, I talked to other people and I asked them like, what's your take on partnership? Like one of the things I'll never forget is someone that I looked up to, Christina Halverson. I still look up to her. Um, you know, she, she runs an amazing company on the content strategy side of things. And she got on a call with me and, and she talked with me about the realities of partnership and how it is like a marriage and how, you know, when things work, they really work. And when they don't, they really don't. And the importance of, you know, like the unsexy stuff, like lawyering up and making sure everything's clear and, and making sure everyone knows the score and, and that compatibility piece is so critical you know, the, the other thing though, that I would say is like a big hesitation to me for bringing in a partner was like, well, giving up ownership, if I'd heard anything anywhere, it's like, be very, very, very cautious about giving up ownership of something you're building because like, it's easy to hand out shares or hand out ownership. Cause in theory, you know, it, there's not this immediate sense of loss. It's different than cutting a check for you know $20,000 or whatever it might be. Like we feel that the minute we do it, partnering up feels exciting. But then when the company grows, you know, and when when that ownership stake means something, it can change people. It, it really can. And suddenly, you know, you're, you're thinking about the dollar signs and with the wrong kinds of people that can tear a relationship apart. Now you're questioning, am I doing to more than more than they are? Are they pulling their weight? And so Jen and I had very transparent conversations about that. But a line that really stuck with me during my evaluation is like, I'd rather have, you know, a percentage of something than 100% and nothing. And I knew if I didn't have Jen, if I didn't have a partner, if I didn't have the right help, this thing was never going to be what it could have been unless I threw my existing business out the window, which again, I wasn't willing to do. So I, I would rather have a portion of something than all of nothing. And that was kind of the, you know, the deciding factor is I feel like Jen's the right person. I know that, that we have the right kind of relationship. I feel like there's this trust there. And we were both like comically sensitive about making sure the other person knew how comically sensitive we were about those things. So it worked well, but partnership is a thorny thing. I don't think it's something to walk into blindly. You you, you really got to make sure you've got the right person and be even more careful if it's you know, a family member or a friend. Joel, thank you for sharing more about your decision to bring on a partner. I think a lot of listeners will find value in how you made that decision. Before we wrap up here, I want to ask you a question. Uh, what keeps you inspired and at your best? <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. Building a business is a grind. Um, it really is. Like, it's fun. And there are days where you're on top of the world. And, you know, it's like that Anakin Skywalker scene in this little pod race, he's like, it's working. Like that's how some days you're going to feel like that. A lot of days, especially one of the things I learned the hard way is when you go from being the creator, the only person handling things, there's so much control and so much, you know, peace of mind that comes with knowing you've touched every piece and it's exactly the way you want it. And you own all the victory and all of, you know, all of the shortcoming when you build a business, when you build a team, your role changes. And there are some situations where you will only ever be called in if something's on fire. And if you're not careful, that's all you're going to hear about. You, you can 
really quickly start to feel like your whole business is broken because people only turn to you to fix, you know, to help fix things that are broken. So a big part of what has helped me escape that is creating channels to celebrate the wins as a team, literally channels to celebrate the wins. We have a Slack channel just called wins where we, we share the day to day. Like this person's really happy. We just got this really great review. This person just tweeted about us. This client just renewed. Um, you have to be very intentional about surfacing the things that are going well, because the bigger you grow and the further away you get from the day to day, the harder that stuff can be to see. On a personal level, I think for me, what keeps me plugging away at this is the idea that I'm learning, I'm stretching and growing, I'm building something bigger than myself. And that to me is inspiring. And then it's like the cheesy answer, but like my kids and my family, like I know I'm putting in a lot of effort now, but that's with the hope that when this thing really hums and takes flight, you know, if, if we if we put in the hard work now, I'm going to be able to eventually hire myself out completely. And it's it's going to enable me to have, you know, a lifestyle that's pretty, pretty uh, cushy, pr- pretty exciting. You know, I'll, I'll be able to to be in the place I want to be and, and not losing sight of, you know, on the way there, like obviously still make time for family and all that. But what's inspiring me is knowing that I'm for every day that's tough, I'm hopefully building toward 10 that are great. So it's, it's kind of a mix of things. Joel, it sounds like you're already taking flight. So the very last question, tell the listeners where they can find you online. Yeah. So if you're interested in Case Study Buddy and the work we do, you can go to casestudybuddy.com. And we publish a lot. Again, my, my philosophy is, you know, people hire you for how you think. So there's a lot there that you can just go and learn and do on your own. And um, you know, a lot of things you can dig into. Uh, for me personally, I'm pretty active on Twitter. You can reach me at Joel Kletke. Uh, same with LinkedIn. Uh, the massive caveat for both of those is I don't always respond quickly, but I always respond. You know, I, I do my best to get back to everybody, but two kids, two businesses, too much to handle often means that I take too long to get back to people. So I'm working on that. But yeah, I'm, I'm always happy to connect with people. I'm excited to you know, see people building their stuff and interesting people building interesting things. Thank you so much, Joel. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Small But Mighty Agency podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes. It would mean the world to me. Or send a screenshot on Instagram while tagging me at Audrey Joy Kwan.